Welcome to Silicon Valley Vibes, a podcast from SVLG that talks to the people, driving the conversations that matter for our innovation ecosystem. I'm your AI announcer, Vivi. We're aiming for the stars with our first conversation of the day as we hear from Vice President, Chief Engineer for Lockheed Martin, Dr. Nelson Pedrero. Dr. Pedrero shares Lockheed Martin's vision for the future of space as we know it. Then we hear from Wynne Cooney-Seant, CEO and co-founder of Politicking, who talks about how she plans to demystify the voting and political process with the younger voters who will be playing a larger role than ever in next year's elections. And delivering this incredible content to your you call them ears, right? Are our SVLG hosts, Nadia Anderson, Chief of Staff and SVP of Strategy, as well as her co-host, Peter Leroux Munoz, General Counsel and SVP of Tech and Innovation. Welcome to the show. I'm Nadia Anderson. And I'm Peter Leroux Munoz. And we're excited to be bringing you Silicon Valley Vibes. On this very special episode of Silicon Valley Vibes, I sat down with Wynne Cooney Seon. CEO and co-founder of Politicking, to talk about how she plans to demystify the voting and political process for younger voters who will be playing a larger than ever role in this year's elections. But first, I had an out of this world conversation with Vice President, Chief Engineer for Lockheed Martin, Nelson Pedrero. We talked about the legacy and history of Lockheed, their current programs, workforce development, and Space 2050 their vision for the future of space. So I won't spoil the episode for our listeners out there, but I will say as somebody who went to college thinking that they were gonna major in atmospheric science, I really enjoyed this conversation. Let's get right to it. Welcome everyone. You're plugged into Silicon Valley Vibes, the premier source for information and insights into the innovation economy. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Nelson Pedrero the Vice President and Chief Engineer of Lockheed Martin's engineering and technology team for a discussion on the future of space. Nelson, it's great to have you join hey, us. Hey, Peter, uh, delighted, delighted to be here. Uh, I, like to, I like to tell my team that space is cool again, and uh, I love to be part of that and the opportunity here to be talking to you and uh, reach, reach our audience. Nelson, let's start with your current work. You are with Lockheed Martin, a global leader in space technology. What's your area of focus and how does it fit into the organization's larger mission of celestial navigation and understanding? Hey, Peter, thank you. Uh, so, so let's see, uh, I'm the chief engineer for Lockheed Martin Space and uh, we have a very broad portfolio, right? From uh, protected communications to remote sensing to space exploration. Uh, it, it, and, and as the chief engineer, me and my team, right, we are really responsible for the technical integrity and the, the engineering content of all, our, all the mission areas and the systems uh, that, we, that we provide and the customers that we serve. So that's, that's in essence, right, what, uh, what we focus on and, uh, and what the chief engineer and the chief engineer's office is, uh, is, is addressing is what is the technical content, what are the technical solutions, right? And then the program execution, implementation of those all the way through, through mission operations. Now, Nelson, what are some of those current programs that you and Lockheed Martin are focused on right now? At Lockheed Martin, our mission is to protect, connect, and explore. 
So all, if you look in the past, all the missions we served, and you look at the ones that we're serving now and the ones that we project in the future, they all fall into these categories, right? So, uh, you know, I think, uh, let's see, I think, let me talk about a, a couple because they're, they're just so timely, right? Uh, let me talk about something that was actually built uh, right here in the, in the heart of Silicon Valley, right? We have, uh, we have a long history. Uh, we have a long history here. Uh, Lockheed, uh, we're now Lockheed Martin, but when we were established here uh, in Silicon Valley, that was in 1956. And uh, it was really to address uh, two primary uh, two primary needs, right, of the you know of, of our customers in developed capabilities to go to space, uh, including remote sensing, right, putting satellites in space that could observe the Earth for various various purposes. And uh, and since then we've been uh, we have have had a strong presence uh, on on the valley. We like to call ourselves anchor tenants in Silicon Valley, and uh, and because of uh, the high technology content and innovation of the you know that space systems require, we actually drove a lot of growth of of the ecosystem here in terms of capabilities and advanced electronics and so on that would go into our system. So we really helped, you know, the, the make the valley uh, what it is today, and we're very 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 proud of that uh, of that that heritage, right? But to talk about uh, to give you a couple examples of missions that we are. Uh, had recently completed or that we are working right now, I actually would like to start uh, and be a little parochial uh, and start with the near-infrared camera, which is the premier scientific instrument on, on board of James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, near-infrared camera was built by our space science and instrumentation group uh, you know, uh, in Palo Alto, uh, in our advanced technology center, uh, our research labs in Palo Alto, uh, that that really has been here for over 65 years. As I mentioned, we started in 1956. And, uh, and the, that very first image, right, uh, that we saw from, from James Webb, uh, which was released out of the uh, President Biden's office, uh, was an image from near CAM. And, and, uh, and since then, and James Webb Space Telescope, it has two other scientific instruments, have been generating science and, and really helping us as a species, right, get a Get a better understanding of the origins of the universe and where we came from. Now, the, now this instrument is uh, is very unique. Uh, it, it has a a refractive design as opposed to a reflective design, meaning lenses versus uh, mirrors. Uh, it's extremely compact. That allows us to make it very very compact. It operates at very cold temperatures. Uh, you know, thirty five Kelvin which makes it extremely difficult. It's a very precise optical instrument, as you can imagine. Uh, and it's designed and built at room temperature, right? Uh, but when you cool it down to, to these extreme temperatures, some of the optical elements, they move about an inch and they need to come into alignment to, you know, in a few nanometers. So you can imagine the engineering that's, that's required to put that together. Uh, so the team worked on, on near camp for, for quite a few years. Uh, invented new technology, uh, particularly in optical design, optical mount technology, optical alignment, uh, detector technology, the electronics to, to operate this system. And, uh, and, and it was like, extremely successful. So we were very, very delighted, uh, very delighted with that. Uh, another mission that is, this one is even more recent, right, that, that we just had a few weeks ago, the OSIRIS-REx sample return. Uh, the capsule brought the you know, the sample from the Bennu asteroid, which was collected about 230 million miles from Earth. Uh, 
And so Lockheed Martin Space, we, we designed, we were partnered with NASA, NASA is our customer on that mission. Uh, and we partnered with NASA to go build that spacecraft and that mission. And uh, you can imagine the, the level of sophistication, the level of autonomy that you need, right? At 230 million miles from, from Mars, we can't be sending commands and waiting for responses from the spacecraft. So the spacecraft needs to have enough sensors and enough logic to be able to make its own decisions and, and uh, find its own at uh, the point where it was going to collect the, the sample and execute the sample collection maneuver, uh, which frankly is a fairly delicate maneuver, right? You're approaching the disaster right. Uh, Bennu is about a half a kilometer in, in diameter, so not, not very large. Uh, the spacecraft has, uh, you know, we retrofitted it with a mechanical arm. We call that the TAG-SAM for touch and go sample uh, collection mechanism, and uh, and, and uh, but this this uh, this tag sam system, this mechanical arm is you know less than ten feet long, uh, and uh, so not very long. So you needed to bring the spacecraft very close to the to the asteroid, and then do the sample collection maneuver. Uh, just a just a curiosity here: the the sensors that were used to do that maneuver were also invented and created here in Palo Alto at the research lab. It's called natural feature tracking. We use cameras like our eyes to look at the asteroid, to actually map the surface of the asteroid, and, and also provide relative distance and attitude so that the spacecraft can command its reaction wheels and thrusters and, uh, and the arm to, to, make the, the, uh, to collect the sample. That was extremely successful, right? Then, of course, Bennu took close to two years uh, in its journey back to Earth. And you can imagine also the, you know, the another layer of sophistication, right, in terms of uh, the thermal materials, uh, thermal protection uh, for as the capsule with the sample, you know, enters the atmosphere. Uh, it enters at extremely high temperatures, which provide a tremendous heating on, on the capsule. And then it has to deploy the parachutes and so on for a successful landing, if you will, and bringing the samples. And all of that worked like clockwork. So now, now we're very pleased that we have these samples at the hands of the scientists. And, and now the fun begins, right, in, in terms of really finding out what are the, what are the materials that make up the, you know, the, the asteroid and so on. I think we already found some water content. Uh, not in form of liquid water, but in form of uh, some other compounds into, you know, into to the material, into the substance that was collected, the, the, the sediments, if you will. Uh, and, and then that will, again, help answer questions about how do these, uh, these asteroids are formed, what are, these, are their constituents, right? And then ultimately, uh, how does the universe really work and where do we come from? So we're very, very excited about that. And I have other examples that I can share with you, but I'll pause here and and, and see if you have any other uh, any other comments or questions. Nelson, this is great background on some of the programs that you're working on there with, with Lockheed. Uh, you are like a modern day explorer. You're like Magellan of 2023, going out there and, and navigating around and bringing back information that helps us understand better our place in the universe. I, I have to ask, how did you come to this this role at Lockheed Martin? Well, I, I can only tell you that I, I've been very fortunate and I've been very lucky, right? To uh, to I was I was always very passionate about uh, 
uh, space and frankly about aircraft also and, and anything that is, you know, aircraft related, space related, flight, right, and, 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 and so on. Uh, I ended up having an opportunity to, to study engineering, uh, aeronautical engineering, and then uh, pursue my graduate degrees at Stanford University, again in aeronautics and astronautics. Uh, actually, in the beginning, working a lot on aircraft and how do you control aircraft in unconventional flight regimes, right? The high angles of attack and things of that sort. And then I, I was very fortunate that to join the Lockheed Martin uh, space team. Uh, at that time, I joined at the Advanced Technology Center in Palo Alto and uh, was able to work in uh, research in a number of different areas, uh, spacecraft control, structural dynamics, uh, optical system, optical telescopes. And, uh, and then uh, the, the Advanced Technology Center in Lockheed has such a long history, right, with the exploration piece. We've been partners with NASA in every mission, every NASA mission to Mars, uh, and we'd like that to, partnership to continue right into, into the future. So we're very, very excited about that. And, uh, and so there's opportunity to work with, the, you know, with this group of uh, world-class group of scientists and engineers into all sorts of different missions and uh, in, in particular uh, scientific missions and exploration missions uh, it has been just uh, you know, a, a significant uh, uh, experience. I talked a lot about the exploration missions and going out, but we also, we also have a long history of observing and modeling and trying to understand the sun, right? The sun is, of course, our, the closest star here to, to, to our home, to Earth. It's also the major driver of the environment around the Earth, right? And, uh, and, and the environment where a lot of our products operate, right? Our spacecraft operates and, and, and so on. So we have a long history of doing that. We, uh, we recently, uh, you know, were selected to, uh, to another heliophysics mission uh, by NASA that we're building the, the MUSE spacecraft uh, uh, to, to, again, continue to observe the sun at higher frequencies at, low, at higher resolutions, right? To really try to understand that phenomena in coronal mass ejection and solar flares. A lot of that has tremendous impact on, on our spacecraft. Uh, so we, we need to get better understanding on that, that uh, our neighboring star here that drives the environment around, around Earth. So in, in a nutshell, I think I, I was just fortunate to, to be able to join this, uh, this team that has such a long history, right? And be able to, to contribute a little bit to, to some of the missions. Let's shift from your past to talking about the future of space exploration. What is Lockheed Martin's vision for the future? Well, I'm so glad you asked that, right? Because uh, one, one of the missions that, that I really wanted to mention is uh, uh, Orion and Artemis, Artemis II Orion. So uh, NASA's Orion is that we designed and built uh, is the safest and most advanced spacecraft in history. Right, uh, which is really required as we are now after uh, over 50 years are now returning to the moon uh, and, and this time returning to, returning to, to stay. Uh, it, it was designed uh, as, a, as a true international partnership of industry and agencies right under NASA's leadership. And we're very, very excited to, to be part of that. Uh, so last year we, we had the unmanned test flight that was very successful. Uh, we're actually now going to be reusing some of the avionics that we used for that first flight for our next flight, which will, will of course, uh, have, a, have a crew uh, on it. 
and, uh, and, and, and the launch is now planned to, in late 2024. And we're very excited about, you know, this coming back to the moon, going back to space, right? Also, if we follow the, you know, uh, NASA's uh, blueprint uh, for, you know, for, for exploration, right? We're going to the moon, we're going to learn, we're going to stay, and that will also prepare us for deeper exploration and uh, in the future going, going to Mars also. So very excited about that. We'll be back with more Silicon Valley vibes after this. Hey everyone, Becca Killian here, manager of events for Silicon Valley Leadership Group with a reminder to register for this year's 45th annual forum presented by Amazon and PG&E. Our marquee event will take place on December 14th at Levi Stadium, home of the San Francisco 49ers. Open to all SVLG member company employees. This event will spark discussions on AI and its impact on elections. Don't miss a chance to hear about our rising startup initiative and exclusive networking with industry leaders, innovators, and policymakers at the cocktail reception. For more information on this event and to register, please go to svlg.org forward slash events. We hope to see you there. Hey everyone, it's your favorite AI Vivi. And now back to your number one podcast, Silicon Valley Vibes. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Vibes. So in that first part of the conversation, I learned a ton about space, about lenses, about technology, but also how Lockheed is thinking about exploring the next frontier. Much of what Nelson and I discussed focused around a key theme. How can humanity better understand its place in the cosmos by investing in the technology and people that make celestial study possible? In the second part of this conversation, we talked specifically about Space 2050, an initiative Lockheed started about two years ago that envisions the future of space and what the future of the cosmos can really look like on multiple levels. Let's listen in. Coming back to the moon, going back to space, right? Also, if we follow the, you know, uh, NASA's uh, blueprint uh, for, you know, for, for exploration, right? We're going to the moon, we're gonna learn, we're gonna stay, and that will also prepare us for deeper exploration and uh, in the future going, going to Mars also. So very excited about that. Nelson, what are the Space 2050 initiatives that Lockheed Martin is working on? Oh, very good. That's, uh, that's near and dear to my heart. Space 2050 is an initiative that we started about uh, two, two and a half years ago. And, and it's really about envisioning the future of space and what the future of space could look like. Now, a question that I get a lot about Space 2050 is why 2050, right? Why not 2100? Why not 2030? <laughs> and and uh, I'm the first one to, to ad admit that there is some degree of arbitrariness as we chose Space 2050, but there's also some level of thoughtfulness behind that. And in Space 2050, we, you know, I, I was very involved on that, and, and we picked that very deliberately because it's far enough into the future that it allows us as a, as a company, as an aerospace community, to really develop breakthrough capabilities and deploy those. But it's not so far in the future that it becomes science fiction, right? And there is, a, there is value and there is a role for science fiction, but for what we're trying to do here, which is really to envision the future of space 
27 years out. Uh, look at different scenarios, how things could play in different manners, and then identify trends or major technology capabilities that show up over and over again, even as you vary these, uh, these scenarios into the future, so that we can start really putting some energy behind that and develop and accelerate development of those technologies, right? So now, when you think that far out, right, is, is we're likely going to get a lot of this wrong in terms of being able to predict, right, what the future is going to look like in space. But the way I talk to my team about this is that it's less about predicting as it is about envisioning. And also, we need to get comfortable with uh, being uncomfortable and getting, you know, some of this wrong. We're not going to get everything right. But as you envision different scenarios for the future of space, there are some major technologies that are going to be necessary, critical capabilities that are going to be necessary. So when you think about um, nuclear power and propulsion, when you think about on-orbit assembly, repair, perhaps even on-orbit manufacturing, when you think about extremely high levels of automation uh, to, to be able to control and task constellations with uh, you know, uh, hundreds to thousands of spacecraft, those are the kind of things that we want to accelerate development, right? When you think about infrastructure in space, right? Truly secure communications that are unbreakable. We're going to need that. That is, that's a given, right? When you think about power in space, when you think about mobility on the moon and Mars, uh, these, are, these are some of the, uh, some of the fundamental capabilities that we're going to need for the future of space. And this is really what we were looking to identify and to develop, right? And, and frankly, in a lot of these areas, <clears throat> we have already started development because we identified those technologies, then we took action to start developing it. It's a work in progress, but we actually have uh, some phenomenal results already, like in, in quantum communications. We, last year, demonstrated in the field quantum communications that is not only unbreakable and truly secure through quantum key dis distribution, but it also will allow us to increase the bandwidth. Think about bits per photon by a factor of 10, right? So then it really starts to get interesting when you start to have those kind of capabilities, uh, those kind of capabilities in place. So we're very excited about that. Also, when we talk about Space 2050, uh, myself included, my team and myself included, we were eager to go and, and talk about what's going to happen in space. And, but we did take a step back to think about and reflect what's happening on Earth, right, in that kind of time frame. And then how do we get to space, right, access to space. And, uh, and what's happening to Earth is very important because what we see in this next 27 years or so, it's another quantum leap in terms of automation and integration of analysis and design tools, right? So we've come a long way when you look back the last 25 years or so, but we have a long way to go. And we talk th about things like one-click design, right? Just, uh, just to put a moniker to it. Uh, well, and the concept that the space professionals will be able to really focus their energy and attention in terms of the top-level mission requirements. And we're going we're gonna to be able to automate a lot of the design. Today, we have chat GPT, right? Think in the future, design GPT, right? Where we use years and years of experience, right? In terms of designing space systems from NASA, from Lockheed, from other companies, from other agencies to train 
uh, right, uh, design assistance, if you will, that will have best practices embedded in them and will have the ability that, given high-level requirements, make recommendations and come up with designs on how to address those needs, right? So that takes care of the design front, right? We are already seeing mass production of spacecraft, right, with uh, uh, companies like SpaceX and Starlink, with uh, uh, Blue Origin and Project Kuiper, with OneWeb, right, proposing and, and some of already launching and, and building a spacecraft on a, on, a, on a cadence, right? Lockheed actually was a pioneer on that with the Iridium system where we built 70 spacecraft, right? We have now come a long way. So if you have the automated design and development, if you're now producing spacecraft, uh, you know, mass producing spacecraft, What's left is in the middle is the development, hardware development. That is still something that today takes a lot of human involvement and human touch, if you will. It's still laborious. We also see in this next, you know, through 2050, this long time frame, it's, it's an, a long enough time frame that we're going to see now a lot of automation of that central portion of development, right? The first time you develop, uh, you know, a new sensor, a new propulsion system, uh, a new spacecraft, uh, a new power system, right? We're going to be able to automate that quickly. So when you think about one-click design, fully automated, you're also bringing high levels of automation through robotics, uh, additive manufacturing, and, and, and so on. And then you're producing on, you know, you're mass producing spacecraft. Now the, the speed of innovation is only limited really by the speed of ideas. And we're going to be producing the spacecraft on a cadence. We now need to get them to orbit on a cadence. And we have already seen how launch costs have come down significantly. We expect them to continue to do so. Nelson, even with the developments and the automation, certainly the space technology industry is going to require people to do a lot of that great work. What is Lockheed Martin doing to help grow a space-ready workforce? Oh, we've... Uh... We're, I'm glad to say that we are we're doing quite a bit in that area, and we have been doing quite a bit in that area for uh, you know for decades. Uh, we we realized right that uh, the systems we develop and build are 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 critical for for our nation. They actually improve quality of life, right? Improve humanity, if you will. And now they are they, you know we're we're, we're invested in uh, really bringing humanity beyond Earth, right? So that's, uh, that's something we're very excited about. Uh, but at the end of the day, the technology, as interesting as it is, and the systems are ca as capable as they are, uh, nothing of this help happens, right, without the driving force, which is, which is you know, the, 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 our workforce, right? It's the human energy, the human creativity, uh, ingenuity and, and drive, right, to to make how 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 this happens. So we have uh, we have over over decades uh, paid a lot of attention to our workforce, uh, working with uh, universities, working with high schools and and local high schools. We have. Uh, I'm very proud to say that uh, you know our team they they donate a, a very large number of hours in, in terms of community service and so on. And that you know a good portion of those include. Uh, sponsoring and participating in K-12 programs, right, giving talks and so on, and really trying to, well, opening a window, right, so that our youth can see uh, the opportunities and, and the kind of work that they can do if they 
if they choose a career in, in, in STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, and math. So inspiring, so there's an inspirational aspect of that, sharing the knowledge, inspirational aspect to that. Uh, we also work, as I, as I mentioned, with, uh, you know, we have had summer internship programs for as long as I can remember uh, with universities. What we've done over the past several years here is actually expand that to, to high schools. Uh, and uh, so, so we're doing that. And then we really tightened up our relationship with, uh, with a number of universities, uh, you know, and I'll mention uh, San Jose State University uh, here in, in Silicon Valley, where we actually work with the faculty to craft, uh, you know, special master's programs that addresses some of, uh, you know, of our specific needs here. Like, so a master's program is systems engineering, master's program in optics, uh, in, uh, in, in, in mechanisms and mechanical systems and, and so on. And, and so what does that mean, right? That means that we interact and work very closely with, uh, uh, with the faculty to help craft the content, right, the curricula. Uh, we then send uh, and, and incentivize uh, some of our employees who want to expand their knowledge base, perhaps want to, you know, they work in, in electronics, they now want to work in systems engineering, they want to expand, move to a different area. So we, we sponsor some of that and we, we facilitate them participating in those courses that we helped build, right, with, uh, uh, with local, uh, local universities. And, uh, uh, and then we hire, right? We hire some of the, some of the uh, graduates uh, from, from the universities there. So, so it's really a very, very encompassing, right? We also have done that with uh, University of Arizona. They have a very strong uh, program in optics. Uh, in the Denver area, we have also done that. Uh, and as I mentioned here in the Bay Area, uh, San Jose State is a, is a great partner of us in, in, uh, in a number of those. Another element that I'm very proud of, and we are very proud of here uh, at Lockheed, is, is the whole aspect of diversity and inclusion, right? When we look at our workforce, we have made a, a tremendous progress in terms of uh, uh, having a workforce that represents better maps and represents our society in terms of uh, you know women and minorities, but we have a long way to go, and and we need to we need to admit that. And uh, but we are uh, we're always working towards uh, you know increasing that, increasing the opportunities, and uh, that is a factor as we make our considerations in terms of hiring and giving opportunities to take take on different challenges. And and one of the things that is that is interesting, right? I got a, a lot, sometimes I got a lot of questions, right? So look. Uh, there is so much competition, right, and, uh, you know, for the labor force, right? And uh, it must be particularly difficult for, you know, for the Lockheed Martin space, right? Uh, uh, we have a big presence here in the Silicon Valley because we're competing with, you know, with a number of other industries and so on. And that is true, but we have done very well on that. And we have been able to attract significant talent because of the brass of the missions that we serve. Uh, and, and because the purpose of the mission, right? Uh, you know, I, I mentioned to you to, to protect, to connect, to explore. That's very appealing. And then when you look at the technology content and the kind of systems we're developing, uh, they're just fascinating. They're so very challenging and, and, and so on. So uh, uh, we've, we've been able to, to do very well and to, uh, to pay a lot of attention to the diversity and inclusion portion and also to the development uh, of the workforce piece. Well, we've included many executives and entrepreneurs here on Silicon Valley Vibes. Can you offer any words of advice 
to young professionals who are just beginning their journey? Yes, I, I definitely can. And, uh, and it's the same advice that I, <laughs> that I gave and give to, to my, my, my children. It's follow, follow your passion. Uh, the, there, is, there is so much, right? Uh, so, so many opportunities and there is so much that needs to be done, right? When you, when you look at, I talked a little bit about Space 2050 and the future of space. It is exciting. It's also very, very challenging, right? So, uh, so we do need uh, talented individuals to to hopefully make a decision and pursue careers in, in STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, and uh, and preferably to you know get attracted to you know to a career in in space. Uh, you know, there is uh, when you look through history. Uh, the developments uh, and knowledge and systems that we built um, to to enable space systems have really have really benefited uh, humankind as a society, right? Have improved quality of life. And when you think, you know, moving forward, we see that actually accelerating, right? So I my advice would be follow your passion and uh, uh, and 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 choose to make a difference and. Uh, and, and come join the airspace community, and uh, we we can definitely need all the brain power uh, we uh, we can get. Nelson, thank you so much for joining us today. I can't wait to stay on top of the news of breakthroughs and discoveries you and Lockheed Martin are working on as we further explore the final frontier. Thank you again. Thank you, Peter. We'll be back with more Silicon Valley vibes after this. Hey everyone, Becca Killian here, Manager of Events for Silicon Valley Leadership Group, with a reminder to register for this year's 45th Annual Forum presented by Amazon and PG&E. Our marquee event will take place on December 14th at Levi Stadium, home of the San Francisco 49ers, open to all SVLG member company employees. This event will spark discussions on AI and its impact on elections. Don't miss a chance to hear about our rising startup initiative and exclusive networking with industry leaders, innovators, and policymakers at the cocktail reception. For more information on this event and to register, please go to svlg.org forward slash events. We hope to see you there. Hey everyone, it's your favorite AI Vivi. And now back to your number one podcast, Silicon Valley Vibes. Welcome back to SVB. Nadia, I'm really excited to hear about your conversation with Wynne Cuniseon. Next year is an election year, and all eyes will turn to ballot battles that will play out across our nation, from the White House right on down to local school board contests. And politicking is ready to help educate and empower voters. You know, Peter, you hit the nail on the head on what I think is one of the major takeaways of the conversation. There's a lot that's going to happen in 2024, and we should be looking down ballots. So a presidential election, where there are tons of local and regional elections and initiatives that are going to help shape our democracy and that we all need to get up to speed and informed very quickly on. Let's check it out. So our listeners are in for an absolute treat today. We have, as we say in the South, a bad motor scooter who you're going to hear from a little bit later. Wynne Cooney-Seon is the CEO and co-founder of Politicking, 
And I'm going to stop talking and let her take the mic and go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks so much for having me today, Nadia. Um, as you said, my name is Wincuni Sale. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Politicking. Politicking is a social political mobile platform. And really the goal of the platform is to create communication between historically disengaged and disenfranchised communities and folks that have been historically part of that conversation. We do that in a myriad of ways, one of which being our mobile app um, and where you can find electoral information. We also have a strong social media presence. And on Mondays, we like today, we do um, conversations with elected officials, thought leaders, and different leaders within the community. And so we're able to interview those folks and really give them a platform amongst communities that they may not have historically touched. So your platform is dope and much needed. And before I get into a little bit more questions about that, I'm keen to hear a little bit about how you grew up, how you came to this space. What was the, the concept behind this? Yeah, absolutely. So I am of Haitian parentage. Um, that's why my last name is French. And so growing up in Miami, Florida, the child of two Haitian immigrants, you know, equity and disparity were terms that I learned earlier than most. Um, and I learned those terms because they were things that I saw within my own community. But my parents always instilled the importance of education in me. And so after finishing up high school in South Florida, I went to Howard University, um, where my mom also attended. And so extremely proud that I was able to go to an institution like Howard. It was formative for me and my my journey into adulthood and into womanhood. And being in the nation's capital, no less, certainly exemplified that experience in all ways and introduced me to politics early. Um, but when I was at Howard University, I was studying biology and was really just interested in public health, biology, medicine, and how those affected black and brown communities particularly. But it wasn't until I went to grad school at Drexel University later in my academic trajectory that I realized that health policy had a great deal to do with politics. In fact, I realized that all of the things I was interested in had a great deal to do with politics. And so I started digging in more on that, Nadia, and trying to understand who really wields the power in this country. Um, was it the physicians or was it the legislators making the laws about who governed our bodies and our livelihoods? And so once I realized that I became fascinated with the world of politics and I had already had some exposure to that through my tenure in D.C., but was able to really return back to D.C. as an adult really on fire about trying to figure out how to eradicate disparities both in the health and political segment. And so once I realized that politics was the arm that controlled everything, I realized that's what I better focus on. And so I had the, the privilege really uh, of taking a gap year to apply for a Fulbright fellowship. And so, you know, just, just to talk a little bit about that, I, I believe that a lot of black and brown young people don't get the opportunity to do a gap year. And for me, I credit it with the formation of this idea because without having the time to sit around and think and ruminate on some of our societal challenges, I never would have had the time to really think 
of what politicking was and what it could be. And so I'm thankful for that time. And so while I had that year of downtime in South Florida while I was applying for Fulbright, it was 2016, one of the biggest elections in my life. And so I remember the night of elections going to a TGI Fridays and sitting around with some friends and having conversations with them about what the future of this country might look like tomorrow. And I realized through those conversations, Nadia, that a lot of my peers didn't quite understand how the system worked. They didn't understand why that although Hillary Clinton had won the popular vote, that she did not ultimately end up being the president of the United States. And through some of those conversations, I started to understand that a lot of people do not understand the United States electoral system. And so my co, my now co-founder, um, Jordan Wilson, and I started to really do some deep digging and some surveying to figure out, is this a me problem or a we problem? And we realized it was a we problem. And what we really decided to do was create a tool that would revolutionize voting as we knew it, but also provide information to our family and friends in a way that we thought was palatable. And so that's how politicking was born. No, I love it. You dropped a number of jewels there. The first thing I want to sort of double click on is that realization that politics dictates everything. I will say a lot of us who work in the public policy space, we were trained as academics or we had watched things happen. But when you actually dig into it, you kind of figure out who actually, as you said, who builds the power and who actually is able to sort of like tip the scales. The next piece the thing that you said that I want to also make sure that our listeners hear is the time to sit and think. There is a big movement now, especially amongst Black women, where rest is a revolution. And the fact that you need to be able to clear your mind in order to see all the things that are going to absorb that information and then to create and then to be able to figure out how you can problem solve because there's so many things coming at us at one time. Um, so kudos to you for being able to do that. And then also that last piece that I want to talk about is that that knowledge is power piece. And essentially it's the me versus me or a we issue or problem. And so Politicking as a platform is focused on information. How do you distill all the information that is out there about elections happening at all levels of government and deliver it in a manner that people can like understand? Yeah, Nadia, it's a challenge. I'm not going to lie. It's something that we grapple with each and every day. And it's particularly challenging through really volatile election cycles like the ones we are in now. Um, but what we do is we really try to focus on places where we know we have large followerships or viewerships, making sure that we're focusing on demystifying that. And I think the challenge really comes in in that we're not only focused on federal elections, we pride ourselves on local and state elections as well. And so distilling that information is tough. We have an amazing team that supports us. We have amazing tools that support us. With the advent of AI, we're able to streamline through information more quickly and synthesize but a lot of it is it takes that human touch and that legwork to really make sure that we're capturing it and packaging it in ways that young people want to see, that minorities want to see. And so that's probably the most challenging part because the information's out there, right? Even the information that we produce on politicking, you can go and really deep and dig deep and find it through your board of election websites, right? But it's clunky and it's outdated. And oftentimes it doesn't give you very much information about the person. Um, and so we wanted to figure out a way to download that quickly and really provide it in a, in a forum that people can access and enjoy accessing. I think that's what it's about in this day and age. 
Um, and just to pedal back just quickly about the, the idea that rest is revolutionary, because I love that you said that. I believe that all of us, particularly minority communities, have these amazing and incredible million billion dollar ideas brewing inside of us, right? But unfortunately, we are so focused on the go, go, go of society and the pressures of the workplace and education and trying to really prove that we're enough, that we don't get to sit and grapple and think about these things and think about how we might affect them. And so I just encourage all of our listeners to take that time for self, take that sabbatical, take those days off to sit around and think and come up with ideas that may very well change the world. I think they're all inside all of us. I always say there's not a disparity in, you know, knowledge or intellect. There's a disparity in opportunity. And I think that's exactly what we see here. No, you are 100% spot on that disparity in opportunity. And I'm going to, again, echo that point of encouraging all of us to take the time, use those sick, those leave days, use the time to sit quietly in a corner and definitely because I think the solutions are absolutely out there to some of the biggest problems we face. And I think our communities respectfully hold a lot of those things because we've seen a lot, we've experienced a lot, and our voices are increasingly need to be more at the table, so to speak, um, for lack of a better word. I want to talk a little bit about what's coming in 2024, but before I get to that, you mentioned the fact that we are essentially polarized when it comes to elections and to policy and our parties and all of the above. How have you experienced going out and like educating people when it comes to the fact that like you are a Black woman, so people may assume you politically lean one way. How do you build trust with the masses? Because we need to get the masses up to date on how all things work and we need to reach everybody. So how do you think about that? That's a great point. I think it starts with really sitting with people where they're at. Going into communities, first off, that have been historically ignored is really one of the ways that we establish trust. And we're not afraid of those communities because we're from those communities, right? And so for me, I understand how important it is to go into a community that where folks may not speak English, but are raising people that do speak English, right? And that are American citizens and are do have the right to vote. And so it's important to educate are, are folks that maybe English is a second language. Um, it's important to educate immigrant communities. It's important to educate, you know, those that have been socioeconomically disenfranchised. We, Jordan and I, are from those communities. We embody those communities. And we want to make sure that we're, you know, pulling as we climb ourselves. So that's number one. Number two is engaging with different people on our platform and the front-facing aspects of our platform. So if you look at our politicking IG page at politicking, and I'm sure we'll link it below, you know, you'll really be able to see that we interview people from all walks of life, from all parts of the diaspora, non-diaspora, all types of political parties. And you know, we've gotten blowback for that, Nadia. A lot of the times, although we tell ourselves to be nonpartisan and we truly believe it. A lot of people don't believe that we are until they see a candidate that might be very different from them on our platform. But we don't shy away from that, right? And we stand up in that because we know it's important. Black and brown people particularly, we're not a monolith. We don't all think the same. We were raised differently. We're from different countries. We speak different languages and we are in different socioeconomic brackets. And frankly, we have different views on how we should interpret things. So I think it's very important for anybody who's engaged in politics to understand that black and brown people particularly and the young people were very nuanced. 
We're pushing away from that archaic two-party system, and we're walking into something new that I think hasn't quite been realized yet, but politicking is on the forefront of developing what that might be. No, that last part, I love it. We are absolutely walking into something new, and it's going to be interesting to see how things shake out. And I also love the fact, too, of being very intentional about making sure that you're collecting all the information and want to double-click on the fact that diversity means a lot of things, that we are nuance. We don't all think the same. Our life experiences will shape how we think about politics, but also how we show up and engage in election cycles. And so you have the broadest net possible to bring as many people under and in and to be a part of what's happening. And I think that's like to be commended. And I love what happens when you actually like intentionally go out and do something and think about it that way. Okay. So million dollar questions, 2024 election. It's about to be one of the most exciting times of year for people who care about politics and engage in these things. Which should be everyone. Which should be everyone. So everyone. <laughs> so what are your thoughts overall about 2024 and how we should be thinking about making sure everyone's voices are heard, but also everyone has the information that they need in order to make informed decisions? Well, for me, Nadia, it's about uplift, 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 right? A lot of folks are just focused on the presidential election. We know that's coming up. It is extremely important. And I encourage everyone listening to vote in that election, but also vote in your local and state elections. So for politicking, that looks like, how do we highlight mayoral races? How do we highlight state legislator races? How do we highlight congressional and Senate races? Because they're all extremely important and formative. Just because your presidential pick one doesn't mean they'll be able to actually get anything accomplished. And so how do we set people up for success? And how do we uplift young leaders that are currently doing the work? I went to the Democracy Summit at Howard University a few weeks ago. Um, and it was it was founded by uh, Nikki Hannah-Jones, I believe, with the writer of the 1619 Project. Brilliant. But she had um, State Representative Justin Jones there of Tennessee. Oh my God, this young brother was on fire for democracy and just for our young people. I loved seeing it. He's in his 20s and he's just really grappling with some really big issues down there in Tennessee. Um, And although they've tried to silence him, it hasn't been working. And so when I see folks like that, that's who we want to invite on our platform. That's who we want to uplift. That's whose names we want to say, because it provides modeling for the next generation, right? We can talk all day about making sure everyone votes, which is important, and that's what we stand for. But also, how do we make sure more young people run for office? How do we make sure more young people get engaged and involved and work in these capacities so that they can understand the nuance of government and then understand why voting is so important in the first place? So I think, you know, there's so many parts of the pie that are going to come together in 2024, and we're really trying to make sure that we touch each and every one of them, but we're really focused on uplifting voices that the traditional media might not uplift. No, I love it. I think the it can't be overstated the importance of focusing on those down ballot races. I was seeing recently in the news reporting on like a sheriff's race was determined by literally like one vote. So like every vote counts, every vote matters. And also making sure too that millennials and Generation Z definitely think a little bit differently about it, but making sure that we are engaged and getting ready to engage now because it's our democracy for better or for worse. And so making sure that we participate, because if we don't participate, nothing changes, but also to making sure that we are out there and breaking down some of the silos that may have existed in the past. So I love everything about what you just said. 
So I know we are brushing up on our time. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you to give any last words to our listeners. What do you want us to walk away with today? I think it's important that everyone here pay attention. We're in a really critical time. We're seeing things that are happening in the world that are unprecedented right now. And whatever you're passionate about, it's happening, whether it's environment, whether it's war, whether it's national security, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's small businesses, startups, all of these things are happening now. And how we vote or don't vote next year is really going to inform the way policy is being rolled out in regards to all of those things. And so I urge you all to pay attention to the issues that matter to you. And they may be different, right? Nadia and I are both Black women, but we may be passionate about about two totally different areas. But guess what? There's one way to make sure that both of our areas are taken care of, and that's through voting, and that's through civic engagement. I urge you to use resources like politicking and making sure you're connecting with your candidates. And don't stop when you elect someone. Make sure you're holding them accountable. Make sure you're checking in on the progress of their administrations. And make sure that you're encouraging young people to run for office because they can and they should be the ones on the forefront of elections moving forward. And so I'm excited about what's to come. I'm excited about the growth of politicking. And I'm so excited about the opportunity you all gave me today. Wen Cooney, thank you so much for your time, for being here, for your expertise, for the inspiration, and for dropping those gems to our listeners. We will all definitely be keeping an eye out for politicking, download the mobile application, but also engaging over the course of the next 12 months, which are going to be absolutely formative for our nation and our democracy overall. So thank you again for your time. Thank you. And that was the conversation. One thing I really appreciated about Ms. Seance's comments is that she and politicking rightfully recognize that underrepresented communities are not monoliths and they don't vote that way. Each group contains multitudes representing the full breadth of human condition and experience. And I appreciate that willingness to accept people for the complex beings they are and not place individuals in tiny boxes with assigned values or beliefs. Nadia, was there anything in your conversation with Wynne Cunisean that really stood out to you? You know, Peter, what really stood out to me in the conversation was sort of how the magic happens when it comes to the creative process and problem solving. How important it is to have those quiet moments and being able to sort of clear out brain space, to be able to think about problems, to think about solutions, and also to be innovative in your approach and doing exactly what was alluded to, meeting people where they are, but also making sure that you evolve and move with the times. Nadia, meeting people where they are is a key theme, I think, in both episodes. Whether it's meeting them here on Earth as they're educating themselves and ready to go into that ballot box, or meeting them as they're preparing innovative and new ideas for exploring the furthest reaches of space through the work that Lockheed Martin is doing. And that wraps up this episode of Silicon Valley Vibes. Please like, share, and subscribe. And remember, with millions of stories in Silicon Valley, you can't always get all of the details. But you can get the vibes right here on Silicon Valley Vibes. We'll see you next year. Thanks for listening to this episode of Silicon Valley Vibes. How about a hand for the amazing humans and AIs that make our show so great? Produced by human Chuck Dickinson and the other humans at Silicon Valley Leadership Group. We'll see you next year.